Hello, and thank you for joining us this morning or afternoon, and welcome to the first in the series of short webinars entitled Five Questions With. I'm Celeste Kalanko, Managing Director of Liberum IME. Here at Liberum, we have been thinking a lot about different ways that we can support the medical education community at this unprecedented time. There are a lot of great initiatives out there that are supplying education on COVID-19, and we felt that adding to these right now would not be most helpful and could potentially just add to a noise that might be out there and make things more confusing. That said, we did want to do something to support the medical education community and decided to conduct a series of Q&A webinars with experts in this space. Our purpose is to allow colleagues to learn from each other's experiences and share some ideas on how education can continue to be helpful in today's dramatically different world. In today's episode, we are talking with Megan Becker, PhD, who is Associate Director for Medical Education and Programs at Gilead Sciences. Megan is highly experienced in designing and implementing continuing medical education and clinical training programs for the purpose of educating physicians, clinical investigators, clinical research teams, sales teams, distributors, and patients. So we're looking forward to hearing what her thoughts are on what work, education, and life might look like now and after COVID-19. Hello, Megan. Um, great to see you, and thank you for joining us so early uh, today. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Celeste. Great to be here. Thanks um, so, for inviting me. You're welcome. Uh, very happy to have you. So we have five questions that we would like to ask you today. And the first one is, what have been the greatest challenges to date under the quote, new normal? Yeah, I think uh, for for medical education supporters, the challenges have, have been pretty minimal. I think the bigger challenges have been for the medical education providers. Um, in trying to reformat things that were supposed to be live, in postponing things, uh, a few cancellations, not that many. But I think probably the biggest challenges have been um, for conferences, live conferences. And I think there was a lot of, and may, may still be a lot of um, anxiety around from the physicians about, are we going to be able to get access to all of the education, uh, the recent evidence that we're used to getting in those live conferences. Um, how do we get that? How do we make sure we're staying on top of our field and making sure that we're giving our patients the best possible um, access and treatment, et cetera? I think those have been the biggest challenge. Um, and, and some of them responded really quickly, um, pivoted to virtual format. But I think the onus now is on us as medical education providers and supporters to make sure that they have access to that education in whatever format we can. It, actually, in a variety of formats is better um, so that we can make sure that they're getting the access that they normally would have gotten at the live conference and making sure that that's available to them on demand is actually the best because then they can access it when they have time. Sort of like what we're kind of doing here today. We're we're, we're doing exactly. this. <laughs> exactly. And then we're going to have this on demand for those who who aren't able to attend. Okay. All right. So so that that is definitely a challenge. Um, my second question for you has is what has surprised you the most 
or what was your biggest learning from the current pandemic situation? Um, I think I think probably what surprised me the most uh, was just the instant elimination of an entire method or mode of learning. You know, we're not all of the programs we support are live, but a lot of them include a live component. And to have that just eliminated kind of so quickly, um, that was that was a surprise to me. And I know that most of the providers that we work with didn't have a backup plan for whatever live component they had in their program. I mean, why would they? They we right. hadn't experienced this before. Um, yeah. But. I mean, I know now we're for every grant submission that we get, we're looking at it. And if there's a live component, we're asking what the contingency plan is. And we never would have asked for that before, but it's it's necessary now. And um, I think in a lot of ways, it's actually, it's good to have that. Yeah, so I think um, that's probably the most surprising. And I think that maybe the biggest learning that I've taken away from this is how how versatile um, medical education providers are that they can pivot so quickly and come up with solutions to make sure that the education still continues without that live component. Do you think that's something, um, you know, we're talking about live components kind of going away for right now. Do you see that that's going to be something that's going to happen for a while? Or do you think that we'll probably be going back to the live um, anytime in the near future? I, that's a really good question. I, I don't think it's going to be really soon. Um, I think there, was, there will still be um, a desire for it. I think pe- a lot of people really enjoy that. But I think, I think there's actually some, some benefits to being forced into this situation because well, I mean, live activities, there are a lot of advantages. Um, but now that we have a lot of things that are, have gone virtual, I, it seems, and I don't know, you tell me what your opinion is, but it seems like a lot of people are more willing to ask questions in a virtual format than they would be maybe yeah. in a large auditorium live session. Uh, and whenever people ask questions, that it's a question somebody else inevitably has, right? So um, I think the Q&A has become a really valuable portion of these virtual events Mm, that I hope will continue. If we do go back to live events soon, I hope that people will remember the value of the Q&A that seems to be functioning so well in a virtual platform and doesn't always function quite as well in the live. Um, But I do think people miss the live, so I'm sure it will come back. Yeah, I, I'm sure that there's there's kind of that mixed feeling, but I think you're right. I think we're, we're seeing that people kind of the anonymity of the of the chat of the, the question mm-hmm. section allows people to ask some things that they might not feel as comfortable with in a in a live setting. So, yeah, that I think uh, is something that uh, that that's great. You're, you're right. When we come back to live, it will be great to make sure that people um continue to ask those questions because that's how we learn um, is, is asking questions and asking questions of others. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we um, need to do a better job of is um, making sure that there's time. A lot of educational programs run right up until the very end and don't allow time for Q&A. And right. especially with all the 
like you were talking about all the COVID-19 education, and I've watched quite a few of them, um, they're allowing so much time for questions. And um, a lot of times that doesn't happen in the normal um, educational programming. People run right up to leave maybe two minutes at the end for questions. Um, But I know one of the programs that we're supporting right now is 70% of the programming is for Q&A, is dedicated Q&A. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a long time. But I think that's somewhat to be expected in something that is so strange and new and, strange um, and new. It's yeah. something that, that nobody has really any idea with. So, uh, But that's great to to that amount of time um, for, for question and answers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, people do have a, definitely have a lot of questions right now. But. Uh, yes, I'm sure we all do. Just just different ones. Yeah. So my third question for you official question is, how have you adjusted your activities and what other ways are you hoping to support healthcare professionals at this time? Um, A lot of the activities have been adjusted in format as we were just discussing. discussing. So some of the the ones that were supposed to be live, um, you know, shifted to a different format. Um, And we've been really working with all of our education providers to make sure that um, we're being as helpful as possible and not uh, limiting their options. Um, So a lot of activities have gone virtual, um, but not all. Some have been postponed and very few actually have been um, canceled, which I think is is fantastic. Um, Mm -hmm. We'd much rather see the education continue in, in some way. Um, but I think another thing we've done is try to, um, try to be really flexible with changes in content because right now they may have been planning for a certain type of topic, but then now they need to add in how COVID-19 affects these patients, these particular patients and what, what the healthcare providers need to be looking out for. And those those types of changes in content um, have have also occurred, and we're we're encouraging that because we want patients. You know, there's a lot of patients at risk, and and they need the education as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, you're right. So I, I'm sure that there's a lot of you know agenda changes, um, and to your point, content changes um, that kind of have to be made somewhat on the fly at at this point in time. Exactly. And, um, yeah. You know, I mean, we're, this is a, yeah. a, 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 you know, a situation where we're really an evidence-based, uh, you know, when we produce CME programs, they're evidence-based, but there's not a lot of evidence out there right now. They're still in the gathering stage. So it makes it no, a big challenge. It's, it's been really hard. And like I said, I've, I've been auditing a lot of COVID-19 education and, and we're supporting some. Um, and it is very difficult because the amount then you know the questions are are this big and the amount of published um literature is, is so small <laughs> and um so there a lot of these webinars that are happening are really you know well here's here's our best education based on what we're experiencing with our patients and that's I've seen a lot of, you know, discussions of cases and um, 
mm-hmm. because that's what they have. That's what they know. So it, it's getting better. There's there's continually more and more evidence. And I think the publishers actually have done a great job of pushing their deadlines far beyond what they're used to as well. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get yeah. things out quickly. And I, I'm sure if we were having this conversation even a month earlier, it would would be quite different than what we're we're talking about even today. And probably, you know, a month or six months from now, it might be an even a different situation at that point in time. It seems to be so fluid. So it yeah. is very fluid, and we've been trying to accommodate that as well um, by offering, uh, you know, fewer of like the long uh, webinars that might happen, you know, once a month or something like that, or it, that it's not as useful to them as maybe some of the more frequent updates. And we're offering a lot of um, micro learning opportunities, so things that are more you know, they might be five to 10 minutes, but it's the most recent evidence that might apply to their clinical practice today that, you know, we want to make sure that they have that information. Um, So a lot of, and providing it to them in a variety of formats. So on their laptop, on their um, microphone, or on their um, phone, if they're accessing their education that way, um, getting emails, text-rich emails with accompanying slides, things like that, so that they have a variety of different formats that they can access it. So whatever is convenient for them, we want to make it as convenient for them as possible. Um, and like we were talking about before, making sure that it's on demand. They, yeah. They're so busy yeah. right now. And if, if you're trying to get them all to attend a one-hour live webinar, that that might be just really difficult for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such so a global next... problem. Sorry. It is. I interrupted. That, no, no, it's no, no. It's a global yeah. problem. So you can't, you can't even put it in one time zone because then there's a whole group of physicians who won't have access to it. So. Yeah. So to your point that on demand is, is, is really, really important for, for a huge variety of reasons. So my next question for you, and we've and you've probably touched on it um, somewhat in, in, in this previous one, um, but maybe we can go in a little further depth. Is um, as we see face-to-face meetings, especially some of the longer, larger um, conferences, you know, either being canceled or postponed. Um, how do you see learning interaction being supplemented? And I think, you know, I'm thinking right now there's some major congresses that, uh, you know, are, are going to be happening soon that would be large gathering places. But we're not going to be doing that uh, for any time in the foreseeable, in the, the short term, for sure. You know, what do you think, maybe in the short term as well as in the long term, um, do you think how are we going to have to supplement this type of um, type of education? Yeah, I think we're going to have to be um, creative. Um, there's, I mean, we we do tend to you know fall to what we've done before, what's been successful before, what's um, uh, what we know it works and is effective. But I think we probably need to be a little more. Um, innovative in in how we do that. I actually think, you know, some of the advantages of, I mean, I know people miss the face-to-face and I know that we need to um, boost that interaction somehow. But I see some of the advantages being that education is now maybe more available to 
people who don't typically attend live live meetings. Either mm-hmm. they don't have the financial means, um, or they can't get away from their practice, or they live in an area where you know it might be more rural and they don't mm-hmm. have have a lot of live events that are within a few hours drive for them. So I think the fact that a lot of these are being held in a more virtual format um, is actually probably better for them as long as they, as as long as they um, are getting the word out that these are available. Um, if, if they don't know about it, obviously they're not going to um, right. access it, but if, if they're aware of the education being out there, I think it is a benefit to them because there are a lot of people who don't attend live meetings for a variety yeah. of reasons. And we need to still maintain their education as well and make sure that we're being sensitive to their needs. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, I think you bring up a really good point. You mentioned up above, you know, this is a global crisis. Uh, but I think that this also brings us some global opportunities because to your point, you know, especially some of the large congresses for a variety of reasons, maybe, you know, somebody didn't have the time off that they could travel so far or financially exactly. or, or those types of things. And I think um, information, um, you know, while it's often been dispersed afterwards, um, you, you know, that kind of cutting edge information from different congresses and such, you know, technically now can be accessed um, because people are looking to make, you know, to make this uh, information available quickly and and at basically almost at the point of care type of, of situation. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess if there's a positive that can come out of this, to your point, I think it's that we can potentially educate a lot more people that might not necessarily get this get this information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like you said, point of care tools, those are um, particularly useful, I think, for, for, say, primary care physicians who have a hard time staying on top of, you know, their patients have a whole variety of illnesses that they have to stay on top of um, because they're not specialized. And those point of care tools are really, really helpful for them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, um, so, so we're making changes rapidly, but, you know, while this has been a horrible situation, you know, hopefully some good can come out of it. Yeah. And and I think a lot of, a lot of the changes that are happening are going to become more standard. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. think they'll go away now that we're learning how useful they are. Do you do you think that, um, to your point, do you think that this will change in general the way that people look at, at learning and uptake of, you know, uh, of, of new diagnostics and treatments and, and such? I mean, certainly in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like where where things have changed so quickly and you know what, what we knew a month ago about this um, about this disease is um, is vastly different than what we know today. And um, just reading, you know, people are people are are changing the way they treat it sometimes almost on a daily basis. Do you think this will have any impact on um, you know physicians, healthcare professionals, maybe even patients being willing to uh, uptake? Uh, and, and try newer things at, at a at a faster pace, or do you think we'll just kind of go back to the way we've always done it? Uh, you, you know, in it's a the really future? good question. 
It's a really good question. Um, Because I think that this situation called for that urgency. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think in general, and tell me what you think, um, but in general, I think um, people are a little more skeptical of information and they want to make sure that it's verified and that, you know, okay, has it been published? And, you know, some of those normal things that we look for as evidence, um, like you said, just weren't available in in the past few months or just haven't been as available. And um, so I think people's tolerance for, for that is slightly different now, but I do think in the absence of a pandemic, there will still be uh, there will there will still be that requirement for you know what is this really evidence based and right. and not just somebody's experience and opinion, um, which is some of you know what well at the beginning all they had all they had was opinion that's correct you know and yeah. and now we are starting to get some evidence and and I agree I think obviously you know. Um, we want to base our education on evidence. I, I mean, that's that's the gold standard. And this is a a unique circumstance where there was, you know, there was no evidence. So, you know, I, I think that people, um, personally, I think that the, it'll be a bit of a, of a hybrid. Um, I, I think they'll be a little yeah, more probably. able to, um, you know, as we know, you know, even, even when there are new guidelines or something that comes out that have evidence behind them sometimes that there's a slower uptake for a variety of reasons but I, I think that you know hospital systems and and the healthcare profession in general have had to make learn how to make adjustments quicker so I think I'm you know I'm hopeful that you know when there's new evidence out that benefits patient care in general that um, healthcare systems and health professionals will be able to adapt a little bit quicker um, and there won't that, be so many yeah. barriers you know in the yeah, way yeah that i completely i completely agree with that once the evidence is there and it's clear um, sometimes it's really shocking how you know two guidelines will both agree and then it takes maybe three more years for a different organization to approve the same guidelines that yeah sometimes yeah. <laughs> and health systems I, yeah I, if they can adapt a little bit more quickly the way they've you know they've had to do in this situation um, I think it's all to the benefit of the patient frankly yeah yeah I I I, I personally agree as well I think that this is uh, you know um, this is almost like a war zone type of, of situation, you know, like I I remember as a child watching MASH, uh, you know, in, and watching the military have to adapt really, really quickly and pick up and, and a mobile hospital move, uh, you know, along. And, and I think the whole world has just become almost like this kind of, um, MASH unit, you know, having to, having to make these decisions quickly. Um, I mean, do you see? I love that. I'm going to steal that if you don't mind. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) You're you're welcome to steal that analogy. Um, You know, I I think right now, uh, one of the things, obviously, everybody's had to try to, you know, get their head around COVID and how to treat patients um, with COVID in a very rapid format. And that's been kind of the sole focus for a while. Um, But I think, do you, you know, and I think this is changes depending on what part of the world you're in right now. But do you see kind of a movement now to say, okay, 
things we're starting to get somewhat of a handle on this now we still have patients with with other you know with other diseases other comorbidities or just who haven't had covid but we still need to start treating them you know obviously cancer patients or you know patients with diabetes or, or you know any myriad of different you know chronic or, or illnesses um how do you see healthcare professionals or education in general starting to weigh that balance? Are we are we moving away from just all COVID all the time, or are we trying to make a hybrid? Or you know how how are you as a supporter looking at how do you balance you, you know supporting the different types of education? Yeah, um, I, I know it's definitely something we talk about all the time um, because we do have. We do have treat have therapeutics for a wide variety of of illnesses, and a lot of those patients are not uh, are not under the normal care that they're that they're used to. Um, a lot of physicians have been trying to do telehealth, which is fantastic, and we as supporters are trying to figure out how can we assist with that. Do they you know do they need education around how to do telehealth? <laughs> um, so because I'm sure they weren't trained in that. Um, They're just having to do it now. And so they're figuring it out. And I think a lot of patients appreciate the ability of their docs to just figure something out so that they can maintain their health care. But I do think things are going, going to have to go back to either not normal, because I don't think that's you know, going to happen for a while, but they're going to have to figure out how to make sure that all their other patients are getting care and they're paying attention. And I think the societies have actually picked up the ball a little bit with this. A lot of societies have figured out ways to assist physicians with not just, you know, maintaining their education with regard to a specific uh, disease, but also how their patients might be at risk. Um, how uh, how how can you keep your patients safe because they they would potentially have very poor outcomes if they did get sick. Um, so I think a lot of that education has been happening from the societies. Mm-hmm. And did that answer your question? I don't know if yep. that answered your question. Uh, yeah, yeah, that does answer my question. Um, my final and last question for you for today is. What piece of advice would you give other colleagues in a similar role to you during this crisis? I'm not. I'm not sure I have advice because I think we've all been kind of going through this and learning as we go. We've been going through this together, and uh, there have been, you know, some communication amongst medical education providers and and supporters. I think there's been a lot, of, a lot more communication, which has been great. Um, but we are kind of learning. Uh, as we go, I think we've all learned to be more flexible and to be as helpful as we can to the people who are trying to figure out different ways of providing the education that they had planned, um, figuring out another way to make that happen. Um, and I would say probably another thing is to really encourage as a supporter, encourage the educational providers to be really creative because I think initially everybody just wanted to move all their live programs to the fall. Well, that's not going to work. You can't have everything move to the fall. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes. And if they didn't move it to the fall, then they wanted to go virtual. Well, you know, some programs really might not be best served as a, in, a, in a virtual format. You, you might want to think about what is the best strategy to meet the educational need. And, you know, kudos to them. They've come up with some really great solutions for different types of education that maybe they hadn't even done before, hadn't considered. Um, and, you know, they're, they're making it happen. Right. So yeah. I think being, yeah, being creative, being flexible, um, and then being optimistic, like you and I were talking about, I think a lot of these things are actually positive changes that are going to make education that much better and more versatile in the future. So be optimistic about what can happen. Great. Well, thank you, Megan, for your time today and providing what has actually been some really very interesting insight and some helpful insight. Um, And I want to thank everyone else who's joined us today to our audience. Um, We will be here again in two weeks speaking with Miriam Ullman, Ph.D., who is the manager of faculty development at the AO Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the care of people with musculoskeletal injuries. Miriam has um, holds over 20 years of experience in the healthcare environment, and I'm sure she will have some more great insight to share with us. So please join us then. Thank you and see you on June the 11th. Bye-bye. Bye.